Welcome to the Sozo Church Podcast. Our desire is to see every person know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Enjoy. I love it. James starts out at war with others. Verse number one, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He, he, he's saying, what is it? Do you realize what's causing the relational breakdown that you're having? There's tension there's dissension, there's arguing, and there's fighting, and, and, and it's, it's so prevalent that i got to talk to you about it. You see, a good pastor will uh, confront uh, people. A good leader, a good parent will confront an issue uh, that's maybe the elephant in the room. What I've discovered is a bad friend, a bad leader, a bad husband, a bad dad, a bad pastor will just kind of sweep things under the rug and act like it's not there. But a godly good leader, a godly good pastor, a godly good friend, a godly good dad, husband, uh, business leader will, will say, okay, there is a challenge relationally and there's a breakdown. Uh, there's not peace within the relationships that we have here. And so I'm going to assume the responsibility to step in and to, to call out the elephant in the room. And he says there's an elephant in the room, and it's this, is that there's challenges, there's arguing, there's fighting. He actually, in just chapter 4, he lists about six or seven different things. You're slandering, you're gossiping, you're backbiting, and this is not an exhaustive list. As you'll read the rest of James, you'll see there's a lot of different challenges that are happening. Rich oppressing the poor. I mean, this is a, this is a pretty jacked up group of Christians that James is pastoring. He's pastoring a very conflicted community, a very messed up community. I'm thankful that I have you because you guys are perfect and you're just easy. But James had his, he had his hands kind of full. Uh, there are conflict. There's conflict in this community. There's challenges there. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship before where it seems like you're always butting heads. And if you're sitting next to your spouse and that is her or that is you and that don't, don't like laugh or giggle, just kind of sit, sit there and, and just receive this. But I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship or maybe your marriage is like that. Maybe your children, I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. It feels like I'm always asking uh, verse one, what is causing all of the fighting, Liam and Nixon? And as we'll see, it's usually, it's, it's, there's a common thread that causes it. But I begin to think about, um, about once when I had to pastor a group of people that, that were like this. There was just major challenges, major issues, a lot, of, a lot of backbiting and dissension and gossiping. It was whenever I took over a position uh, as an executive pastor of the staff of about 30 people, uh, one of which is sitting in here right now, and so uh, they're probably going to start giggling. You may hear this because they'll remember this. Um, but I took over this staff, and there was so much drama on this staff I mean, it was just a complete mess. P people were arguing. People were talking about one another. Uh, people were gossiping. It was, it was the, the greatest challenge I've ever dealt with in trying to, to bring leadership to a group of people. And finally, I, I remember journaling and, and asking, saying, God, what is causing all this? Like, is it me? Am I a bad leader? Like, what is going on here? And I felt like the Lord said, you've got to step in and address the elephant in the room. And so we had this one particular Tuesday. Uh, I remember having the entire team together, and it was always very awkward when everyone got together. It was like that family reunion when no one really likes each other. That's what our staff meetings felt like. And I, I had everyone take out this little pink note card, and I asked a series of questions. And uh, it was like, what do you love about our team? Write it down. You know, don't put your name. I, I said, don't put your name on any of the cards. I said, what do you, first question, what do you love about our team? And they wrote it down. And I said, well, what do you not love about our team? Uh, and answer that. 
And, and then I said, uh, in other words, what do you see that you do not like on our team that you wish it could be, get better, and how would you make it better? So they answered that question. And then I had a few other questions. And then, and then right whenever the, the staff meeting was about to end, I said, I, I have one final question. I said, what's the elephant in the room? I said, I want you to answer that question. What's the elephant in the room? That thing that, that's, that's creating this tension that no one's talking about but everyone's talking about, what is that thing? And man, you could have heard like a pin drop in the room because there was, there was, we were at war with one another. It was like this civil war taking place and um, each person took time to write it down and then watch this. I said, now we're going to turn those in and we can dismiss. So they, they handed them all in. I said, we can dismiss or right now we can keep the door shut and I can just start reading these cards and we can talk about the elephant in the room. And it was like, oh, everyone's eyes got big. And I, uh, I started reading those things. And I said, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to say it, and your name may be, may be mentioned on this card. But we're just going to talk about it. And we spent hours in that room. Oh, it was hot and heavy. It was intense. I mean, some of the question, or some of the responses to that question about what's the elephant in the room, it was intense. But you know what I discovered as I, I left? Two things I discovered as I left that room. Um, my assistant and I went through the note cards, and we just matched the uh, penmanship with the different people. And I, so then I knew who it was, so it was great. Um, <laughs> I was so shady now that I think about it. <clears throat> but here's, this was the common thing that I discovered. I discovered that the root of all the fighting, the, see, the fighting was a fruit of a root issue. The root issue was not just that people were fighters. The root issue was that as we begin to look at every single one of those complaints, I would probably say 10 out of 10 of the things, it was one root, and this is what it was. Everyone was self-centered. There was self-centeredness. That was the root of the problem of all the arguing and fighting. Everyone had placed themselves at the center and were making decisions uh, disregarding the people, the other people on the team, not, not even considering God, but just making decisions. How does this affect me? I'm at the center of this thing. And I think that's what James begins to confront right here. He says, listen, not only are you at war with one another, but there's actually a war beneath the war. It's not that just that you're at war with other people. You're actually at war with yourself. There's something on the inside of you that's causing this. And this is how he says it. He says, so what's causing the fights and quarrels among you? Verse 1. Verse 2, he says... Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. So you kill. You're killing your relationships. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. He's describing a self-centered person. Is you just want it your way, and it doesn't matter who you affect. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter who has to pay for it. You want it your way or the highway. All you're thinking about is yourself. You're thinking about, what do I want? What am I getting out of this? And so that your decision-making filter is with you at the center saying, I don't care what you want or she wants or how this affects them or really what God wants. I, I'm just wondering, like, how is this going to affect me? I, I'm, I'm, self, I'm self-seeking. I'm, I'm, I'm living to please myself. I'm living to position myself. It's all about me. So the self-centered person, this is right down, the self-centered person is self-seeking, self-promoting, self-preserving, and self-serving at the very core of who they are. And self-centered people struggle to have healthy relationships. I would submit to you that if you live a self-centered life, if I live a self-centered life, every single one of our relationships will eventually be destroyed. 
Your relationship in your marriage, your relationship with your kids, even your relationship, as we'll see, with God. When we take center stage and say, the world is about me, life is about me, everything is about me, and we put ourselves at the center of the stage, it just begins to damage everything in our life. It begins to ruin our relationships. And I think the point that James is trying to make is this, is that the mark of spiritually immature people is this. They are self-centered. People of faith with mature faith are not self-centered. It's actually the converse. One of the marks of maturity in a person is that they make decisions with other people in mind. Life is not just about them. They are considerate of others. Mature people of faith don't make everything about themselves. The world does not rotate and revolve around them. You ever notice that self-centered people, all they do is they like to talk about themselves? Like, so narcissistic. It's like, listen, um, what do you think about me? What do you think about me? And me, 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 and me, me, me. Okay, listen, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's like, that's, uh, it's like, go, go, go look at their, their Instagram or their Facebook. Every picture, it's them. I know a pastor one time, he, uh, he had this picture that he put on the screen. It was, it was great. He was like, I think it was Pastor Brian Houston. He was like, church. You know, he sounds like Count Dracula. Uh, he was like, uh, if you don't know who it is, go Google his name. But uh, he wanted to show that his church or his staff um, this picture. He was like, I took a picture of uh, this elephant. It was like 10 feet behind me, this massive elephant. And so he shows the picture on the screen, and it's basically is just a picture of his head. He's like, because his face was right up in the center of the picture. You couldn't even see the elephant behind him. And he was like, don't you see this giant elephant? And everyone's like, we're looking at your giant head. And, uh, and he made this statement that was brilliant. He said, how much larger our world would be if we could become much smaller in it. Isn't that great? How much larger our world could actually be if we would simply become smaller in it. That is that if, if we would stop being the central focus of our life, how much larger our relationships can be, how much better our marriage could be if we weren't in the center of the frame, up close and personal, making it all about us. When we live our lives like that, it damages everything. But what is the war that he's talking about that's battling and raging on the inside of them, that's causing them to damage their relationships? Here's what I think it is. Self-centered people battle discontentment. See, here's what it is. I've never really truly thought deeply about this until I was reading this text because he starts saying the reason you're self-centered is is because you're, you're you're constantly wanting more, more, more. Nothing's ever enough. And you damage the relationships around you because you just want more and more and everything's about you. And and truly what it's revealing is on the inside of this person is a brokenness, a deep brokenness and and, and an emptiness and, and this person is trying to fill and satisfy that deep openness and that gaping wound in their life by getting more things and, and making everything about them. And he says it's actually, it's pleasure. He goes on to say that, that everything that you're wanting, everything that you're pursuing, everything that you're trying to fill your life with, it actually comes down to pleasure. It's the word uh, hedony. It's where we get hedonism from. That's what that, that Greek word there, pleasure, is. What is hedonism? I was thinking about this because I think it's, it's a great description of what he's describing. Hedonism is the ethical theory that pleasure is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. He says the problem is, is that you're, you're a pleasure-seeking, self-centered person. Now that's harsh, isn't it? He's like, you want to know why your relationships aren't working? Because you're all about just pleasing yourself. 
You're all about just satisfying yourself. You want everyone else to satisfy and to please you. Everything is about you. And he's like, this is the root of the problem. He's like, there's actually a deep brokenness in your heart, in your soul, is that you're no longer being satisfied by God. You're trying to satisfy yourself. This is what true emptiness is all about. It's hedonism. Now, we would never say that we're hedonists, right? We would never say that. But I think if we just look at the way that we can oftentimes gravitationally like drift towards is a hedonistic, a subtle hedonism is what I call it. It's not this blatant thing where it's like, I'm all about myself, I'm all about myself, I want to please myself. But we can begin to live our life where our chief pursuit is, is our own happiness, is we just want to be happy. We want everything in our life just to make us happy. It's a subtle hedonism is what that truly is. But it's completely opposed to God and the kingdom that God tries to design and set up for us to live within. See, a God, the kingdom of God is a God-centered life, not a self-centered life. And a God-centered life, a kingdom, the kingdom of God that he calls us to is not focused and oriented around just ourself, but it's this, it's God is at the center and we're others-oriented and we're thinking about the people around us. In essence, a God-centered life makes the aim of life pleasing God and serving others. That is what the God-centered life is. And James says, listen, you're damaging your relationships because you're living a self-centered life, and I want to call you back to living a God-centered life, where life is not just about you pleasing yourself, but it's, it's asking a different question. God, what pleases you? God, how can, I, how can I live a life that pleases you, God? That's the filter that you, by which we make our decisions, is that we say, God, I just want to please you. What would please you when it comes to my finances? What would please you when it comes to my sexuality? God, what would please you when it comes to my relationships and my friendships? What would please you at my job, in my work, God? How can I bring pleasure to you? God, how can I bring glory to you, not glory to myself? Because, God, I realize that life is not just about me. Life does not rotate and revolve around me. But, God, life rotates and revolves around you. God, you deserve that. I don't deserve that. How can I live my life with that in mind? Where your pleasure, God, is my chief pursuit, and I aim to serve others, not to be served. This is the kingdom of God. A self-centered kingdom is opposed to a God-centered kingdom. And I think that's where he begins to move towards. Uh, He says this, he describes it like this. What you're actually doing is you're falling in love with the world. What does he mean when he says that? He says it in, I think, verse number, uh, verse number four and five. He says, you adulterous people, you don't know, do you not know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What is he saying when he's saying you're becoming a friend of the world? Uh, that, that, that phrase or that, that, that word friend there, it really is kind of a weak translation. What he's saying is this, is you've become fascinated and infatuated with the system of the world, the way that the world does things. You're, you're starting to look more like the way that the kingdom of this world is than, than you look like me, God says. And, and when you begin to align yourself with that way of thinking, that way of doing life, having an attitude like that, uh, doing your business like that, when you begin to do that, you're actually you're, you're creating opposition between you and me. And if you feel like things are not going good in your life, it's probably because you're actually living out of alignment with my kingdom. And so you're feeling this resistance and this opposition and things aren't working right. It's because you're out of alignment with my kingdom and you've become friends with the world. It's so, such a hard statement, but, but look what 1 John says, uh, chapter 2. He says, love not the world. This is the same thing. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. I love what Harold Linsell said. He says, uh, it is right for the church to be in the world, but it is wrong for the world to be in the church. A boat in water is a good thing. That is what boats are made for. However, water inside of a boat causes it to sink. That is that the church is to be in the world, but the world is not to be in the church. It will cause us to sink at every single level. Look what A.W. Tozer said. He said, we have a whole new generation of Christians that has come up believing that it is possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. That is, an empower, that is a powerful statement. James goes on to say it like this. He says, regarding this whole issue of you loving the world and, and loving yourself and you've, you've drifted away from God being at the center of your life and, and serving other people and having that healthy type of community, he says, rather than that, he says, here's, what, here's how I would describe you. And this is a strong statement. You're adulterous people. Now, he uses this word that, that's great because he just came out of this whole idea there where he talks about being enmity uh, with God when you choose the world. And that's, that's more of like a, a political kind of statement. It's like two, almost like two parties that are divided or two countries that are, are divided. But he, he brings it into a relational context. He says, when you begin to live at the center of your life, uh, everything rotates and revolves around you. You're beginning to live according to the world system, the way that the world acts, and you're not living according to my kingdom and serving others and being humble and preferring and deferring other people. When you're not living like that, he says, here's what, what you're doing. You've become adulterous. And, and that's a weird thing that he would say right here, but it's, he's basically painting a picture of like in the Old Testament. The Bible would talk about how God was like a husband choosing his bride Israel, which now is the New Testament church. But it was this picture of a husband loving his wife. And, and what you'll see in the Old Testament is every time when Israel, the wife of God, would, would, would fall in love with the world and would go kind of veer off track and go off course, God would use this phrase. It was like, you're like an adulterous wife. He was like, you, you keep cheating on me is what he's saying. Like you're falling in love with, with the world and my love for you is a jealous love. Like that sounds funny to say that God has, has a jealous love towards us. But here's what it means. It's not saying that he's an insecure husband. It's saying that he's a loving husband and he wants what's best for his wife, but he keeps his heart is breaking watching his wife get off course and veer away. And he's saying, come back to me. You're, you're cheating on me is what he's saying. And, and I love it that James uses this picture because it's, it's kind of in our face, but it shows us the relational characteristic of God is that whenever we sin, when we pursue our own way, when we live a self-centered life, it's not just that we're sinning against a law, we're sinning against love. We're breaking the heart of God. And James says, you got to understand that when you live like that, with you at the center and not God at the center of your life, it breaks the heart of God. He's like, and I don't think that's what you want. Like you can actually hear the pastoral tones coming out here, even though it seems more like a prophet than a pastor. He's like, you're, you're an adulterer. You're cheating on God. But it's actually, he's saying, come back to God. Come back to your loving husband. And he says this, he says, you adulterous people, you don't know that friendship with the world means enmity against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? He's saying this, that it's not just that you're at war with other people. It's not just that you're at war within yourself. You're actually, you're at war with God when you begin to live with your life at the center of everything. And that's not a good place to be. 
Because if you're at war with God, here's what I know. It's a war you cannot win. You can't. Have you ever tried fighting God? It just doesn't work. Ask Jacob. He left with a limp, like leg all broke and stuff. Like read it in the Old Testament. I have tried to fight God. I have wrestled with God. And God has wrestled with me. And it just doesn't work. Like war with God just does not work. I love it because he continues to go down. And he says, you're actually fighting with God. And God's, God's not going to share you with anyone else. Because he has a jealous love towards you. God loves you. And, and here's what, the way that I think James is trying to really say it. God will share you with no other. He wants all of you or none of you. That is what James is saying. That's a hard statement, isn't it? Is that if God is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Like, I, I'm just going to be candid with you that if, if my wife had some desire to kind of, you know, go off track and just kind of pursue other relationships, uh, that would be very hard for me to stay married to her. I, I hope that we could be reconciled and redeemed, but, but like, you can understand that. And I can understand that, right? Like, if you're married to someone and your love and your devotion is to them, you really kind of have an expectation that their love, their commitment, and their devotion would be to you and to no one else. And it makes sense that if they continue to go on that path that they are actually choosing. You're not choosing to make them your enemy. They're actually choosing to put you in opposition with them. And that's what James is saying. Like when we continue to go this way where we're living at the center of everything and we're living just for ourselves and and we're living according to the ways of this world, he was like, what you're doing is you're actually creating the distance between you and God. You're putting yourself at opposition with God and it's a war that you'll never win. It'll never work out in your benefit and for your good. And he says all that that seems like this huge like pastoral backhand, but then he brings it over to something very hope-filled. He says, but God gives us more grace. And that is why scriptures say God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What is he saying? He was like, God's grace is available for the self-centered person. All the self-centered person has to do is humble themselves, posture themselves in a place where they say, I don't want to be at the center anymore. I don't want to live for myself anymore. And the Bible says God's got more grace than you can even imagine. And all you have to do is to humble yourself. That is to come to the terms that I have lived an arrogant life with me at the center. And I know it's not working out for this relationship with friends, with family, with my marriage, or my relationship with God. And when we humbly come to that place where we say, I realize I am self-centered, he says this, that's when we begin to open ourselves up to receive grace from God. It's this picture I got in my mind is that grace never stops with God. It's like a, a, a beautiful just raging water, like waterfall. It's just, just, just falling from heaven. But what happens is, is we get out from underneath that when we begin to live a self-centered life. But when we say, I'm no longer at the center, I'm humbling myself, it's as if we're stepping underneath that waterfall, receiving God's grace. That's the picture that he gives there. But he goes on and he says, but there's, there's grace that God has for a self-centered person if, if he will just simply humble himself. And he goes on and he describes what I call a beautiful surrender. See, when you're at war with God, this is a war that you cannot win. And with any war that you cannot win, there's only one option. It's a white flag. You have to surrender. He says, here's what surrender looks like. Verse seven. After all that, he says, so here's what I want you to do. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And when he says sinners, he means your activity, not your identity. 
Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. That is cry, weep. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then he says this, I love it. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Here's, Here's what those things mean. When he says submit yourself then to God, he's saying there needs to be a radical reordering of your life is that you've been at the center and now you make a decision. Notice he doesn't say, God's gonna submit you. He says, submit yourselves. It's a choice that we make. Is I'm not going to be in the center of my life. I'm gonna restructure my life. I'm going to reorder my life and I'm going to now submit my life to God. It's actually a Greek military term that he uses here. It's hupotasso, which means to arrange under, to become a subordinate underneath someone is to arrange a troop division in a military fashion under the command of one leader. And he says, you know what? You want to live a life that's not self-centered, sabotaging your relationships? He says, then you have to submit yourself to God. And here's what that means. is I'm moving out of the center. I'm placing God at the center. And I'm putting my life underneath his life saying, God, I, I am submitted to whatever you want to do in my life. I'm going to be obedient to what your word says. If you say to serve people, I'm going to serve them. If you say forgive people, I'm going to forgive them. If you say to love my enemies, I'm going to love them. I'm going to submit my life underneath your leadership, underneath your guidance. I'm going to leave a, live a submitted life, not a self-centered life. That's the first thing that he says to do. Reorder who is at the center of your lives. And then he says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Here's what he's saying. You're going to have to resist the temptation to go back to that place where you're at the center. And you're going to feel like all of hell itself is, is trying to tempt you and pull you back to that place of the center stage and to where you'll start making decisions that just affect you and you don't care how they affect other people. He was like, you're going to have to resist that. It's going to be a fight. You just need to know it. It is always going to feel like a fight. You know why? Because we're made of flesh and we want our way. We want to be at the center. And and our marriages, the reason why they fall apart is because we want our way. I don't care what she wants. I want my way. And he says, you do that, and you're at the center, it's going to ruin your marriage. But if you'll submit to God, and then you resist the temptation to go back to that, your marriage will flourish. Your business will flourish. Your friendships will flourish. And then he goes on. Then he says this, come near to God, and he will come near to you. You know what James is saying? You've got to return to a relationship with God. You have to return to a place of intimacy with God. You have to be back to this place where where now your obedience and your submission to God is not a bunch of rules and regulations, but it's out of relationship. You're now back in this loving relationship with God where you're coming near to him. And and there's that proximity where there's a closeness and a nearness. And and here's why that's so important. Because when you get near to God, you get near to his heart, you don't want to break it. You don't want to hurt him as your loving father. And as your loving husband, you don't want to hurt him. It's a nearness and a closeness. And he describes what that looks like. He says, if you're going to come near to God, first you have to wash your hands. What does that mean? Wash your hands means you're coming clean. With the dirt you've been messing with and dealing with, the things of this world that you've been participating in that are opposed to God, he says, you got to wash your hands of that stuff. You just got to come clean with that. And then he, he moves from your hands to your heart. He says, wash your hands and purify your hearts. The problem is, is that you and I, we can't purify our hearts. Here's his point. You need Jesus to do that. It's you need Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You can't cleanse your heart. That's why First John says, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And then he says this, coming near to God, 
coming back close to him is this. He says, I want you to mourn your condition. Remember, he says, mourn, weep, well, cry. That's like, that doesn't sound like a, a very life-giving, uplifting message. Here's the point he's trying to say. There has to be true, true repentance in your heart, a true brokenness for your sin. I think this is something that, our, that the church, the universal church has kind of abandoned a bit. And here's what James is saying. I want you to understand the seriousness of your sin. I want you to understand how much it's damaging the people around you and how much it's causing a distance between you with God. And, and here's, what, here's what he's saying. I want you to think deeply about the sin in your own life. I want you to think about that, not so you feel condemned or guilty or beat down, but the more that you begin to think about how it's ruining relationships, how it's ruining your life, he says, maybe it's gonna help you to not return and go back to those things. I heard it once said that John Wesley, the great Methodist preacher, that he would go and he would preach to coal miners and they'd come out of those, those you know, like the mountains areas and they would come out to hear him preach and he would stand up on like a, a box and he would start preaching the gospel and he would talk about the sin, the condition of their hearts. And, and I've read many biographies about him that said that those coal miners, it was a beautiful sight. You'd see their face covered in soot and like this basically co coated in black coal over their face. But as he began to preach about the condition of their heart, their sin, and how they were far from God, many, many accounts would say that they would see, you begin to see in these, these just rugged men, these tough men, you'd see these streams of tears cutting through the coal on their face. Why? Because they were understanding the weight of their sin and the seriousness of their sin. And it was an outward reflection of what God was doing in their heart. They were mourning the condition of their heart. I think that's a good thing to do is every once in a while, not just to be like, okay, I've, I've made some bad decisions and I'm gonna keep moving forward, but to really think about that, think deeply about that. God, when I'm living self-centered, look what it does to the way I treat my kids. Look what it does to my, and to think about it. But you can't stay there. That's why he moves on and he says this, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. See, that's where it's gotta get to. It's gotta get to the place where we live a submitted life and a humbled life and we understand the weight of our sin, but then we get to this place where we say, God, I need you to lift me up, to bring me to a new level, to bring me to a new place, to transform my life. I need you to do for me, God, what I cannot do for myself. It's this beautiful picture of like a subject coming before a king. After this subject has been a fugitive on the run, he's, he's committed crimes against the king and the king's kingdom. And he's been on the run, but he's come to the end of himself knowing that there's no way he's going to be able to, to run the rest of his life. So he comes before the king hoping that maybe if he comes and pleads for forgiveness, that maybe the king will, will let him off the hook. And so he comes into the presence of a king and he just lays down on the ground, flat on his face, in humility, ashamed. And he lays there and he begins to just confess all of his crimes against the king and the kingdom. And as he lays there in that place, probably in filthy clothes that are rags because he's been running, he probably hasn't showered and he's just, he looks terrible. He's been a fugitive running. And as he's laying there, just face down on the ground before the presence of a king, confessing his sins, here's what the king does. The king gets up from his throne, walks up to the subject and he picks him up, lifts him up off the ground 
lifts him up from that place of brokenness where he was weeping and mourning and pleading. The king lifts the subject up in that moment and he calls for them to bring out his royal robes to wrap them around the subject that was once covered in shame and humility. He wraps him in his robes and he says, today I'm, no, I'm not only gonna cancel your, your charges against you, I'm not only gonna reinstate you as a citizen of this kingdom, but I'm actually gonna welcome you into my family and you can eat at my table. You're not just going to be a subject, you're going to be a son. That's what the king does. When we humble ourselves before him, when we come before him and say, I don't want to live on, a, on the run as a fugitive with me at the center of my life and the center of this world, but I place you at the center and I come humbly before you. The Bible says when we get to that place, God's got grace for us. He pours his grace out on us and he lifts us up. Amen. Come on, why don't you bow your heads with me? Lord, we love you so much, and, and God, we thank you for your word that sometimes when we read scripture, it's just so uplifting and encouraging, and sometimes we need to feel the weight of certain things, the weight of self-centeredness when we begin to make ourselves the center of everything. That, that's a good thing that we understand it, because if we don't know the severity of what's causing the problems in our life, God, we'll never be able to find the resolution and the solution. And Lord, today, as I was even praying about this, I was deeply convicted about areas of my life where I am the center focus, where life is just about me and I'm about satisfying myself and I'm about living for myself and not concerned with people. I fall into that trap sometimes. We all do. But God, I thank you that whenever we <coughs> come to terms with that reality, we can humbly come before you and submit our lives to you and say, God, we don't want to be at the center, but that we put you at the center. So Lord, right now in this moment, I pray that you would be at the center of our lives, that we would not live for ourselves, we would not fall in love with the system of this world, but that we would, would be faithful to our King, King Jesus submitted to his kingdom, to his reign, to his lordship. God, you will share us with no one. You want us just for yourself. Why? Because you're, you love us so much. And right now in this moment, I just want to ask you, if you're here today and you say, the truth is, is I have lived self, a self-centered life where I am at the center. And God has not been at the center of my life. But today you say, I want to make God the center of my life, the central focus of my life. I want my life to be reordered and restructured where he is number one. He is leading and guiding. And I want to follow him. I want to be a follower of Jesus. If that's you today, I just want to pray with you. It's a simple prayer like we read in 1 John. If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful to forgive us of our sins. Right now in this moment, you can just say something like this. Say, Jesus, today, I confess my sins to you. I confess that I've been the center of attention in my life. But today I want to make you the center of my life. Will you forgive me? Will you cleanse me? Will you make me new today? I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. God, I pray for every person that has just prayed to make you the center of their life. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and live on the inside of them 
enabling them and empowering them to live out the commitment that they've made today. God, I pray your blessings on their life as they they reorder and restructure their lives around you. God, I pray that you'd be the fulfillment of their dreams. God, that you'd write on the pages of their heart and that, that you would do things in their life and through their life that they can't even imagine. I pray your blessings over them today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening. Join us each week on the podcast or live in San Francisco, California. Keep up with life at Sozo Church by following at Sozo Church SF on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a great day.